So, you have next a, a genealogy in verse 9 of Noah, because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord in verse 8. So, Noah was a good guy. And because he was a good guy, he and his family, and it would have been other people too, would have been saved. Okay, As it was, just his closest relatives showed up on the fateful day, and so they were the ones that went in to the ark with the animals. Everybody else perished. You know about this. The ark was certainly, by the way, big enough for, uh, for Noah and the the animals to go in there. There were probably, I think somebody figured out around about, was it 50,000 critters would have gone in there? Something like that. There was enough space in the ark anyway for all of them to get in. Or maybe it was 5,000. Anyway, uh, just go on the creationist websites to, to look at that. Uh, there are nearly a hundred ancient flood stories. Did you know that? Every ancient civilization has a flood story. Uh, when I was a, uh, well, when I was uh, in Texas, so a few years ago, uh, one of the churches that I used to preach at and teach at was the uh, the uh, Arlington Baptist Church, it was the Chinese Baptist Church, and uh, so I used to take their Sunday school class. Sometimes, and then I would preach their service, uh, not in Mandarin. Okay, but I asked them one day because we were going through this passage, and I asked them, "Hey, I've heard that there is a Chinese character that kind of describes Noah and the Ark. Is that right?" And they, you know, they uh, understood what I was saying, and there is. There is a Chinese character because you know that Chinese is pictographic, yes? In other words, it's a picture language. That's why it looks so funny. It's, it's pictures. And so that the, uh, the Chinese word for big boat is boat and eight. Boat with eight people. Yeah. Interesting, isn't it? So... Uh, there are all kinds of, of legends and, and things that go back to this. Um, many of them are, are grossly exaggerated and, uh, you know, the, the one, the most famous one has got to do with the, uh, the uh, oh, what's it called? Gilgamesh epic, which uh, has, instead of an ark, you know, whatever the ark was like, but let's say it was something like this, okay, something like that, uh, with loads of giraffes and elephants, of course, coming out of the top. Um, well, well, that's the, the biblical one. This would float, okay? That's about all it would do, but it would float. It would, it would uh, help somebody survive. But in the Gilgamesh epic, what you have is a great big cube. Sorry about my drawing, but... So you have one of these, okay? That's supposed to be a square cube. Um, and what's this going to do? Boom, 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 boom. I mean, they're going to be dead, aren't they? They're going to all be smashed in, into each other, you know, within the first week. 
never mind, you know, months together. So this is not going to work. But this, obviously, this would work. And what happens is that God says in verse 17 that he's going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, which is the breath of life, in which is the breath of life, everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. This is the first word, or first use of the term covenant. The Hebrew term is berit, uh, either with a just a T or a TH. And um, this is the first mention of the word covenant. So we don't get any mention of a covenant before Genesis 6. And we don't get an establishment of the covenant until after the deluge, which we'll look at in a minute. Uh, one of the things that is kind of noteworthy, do you see that word establish there in verse 18 of chapter 6? Yeah, you see it? Uh, that that actually is not the characteristic word that's used when making a covenant. Normally what you have, everyone got my diagrams down? Take them off. <clears throat> Normally what you have is this term, karat berit, okay? Which means to cut a covenant. Okay? It means to cut a covenant. And that means to, to start it, to, to start off that relationship. What the word here is not that. The word here is a different word. It's hekin. And this has to do with uh, kind of establishing uh, something that maybe existed previously. Do you see? Uh, so it's an interesting thing. And what uh, Old Testament scholars try to do is they try to say uh, that uh, because we have this word and not this word, that there must have been a covenant before this. That we, you know, and then they go around hunting for this covenant. And lo and behold, they come up with all kinds of different covenants, none of which agree with each other and none of which they can identify the wording of. That's not a good way to, to do uh, exegesis or interpretation because, again, what you do is that you read back into somewhere where you, you yourself are the one who's going to determine what's what in the Bible without any clear indicators from the Bible itself. And in, when a person does that, what they tend to do is that they make a covenant of their own liking and then they use that covenant to interpret the rest of the Bible. But is it, a, is it a C1 or a C2 or even a C3? No, we're back in, you know, it actually we, we get back into C5 territory again, which you should never go to because you've actually left off from the Bible itself and you are in your own little biblical universe telling God what he's supposed to have said. So, how do we deal with this then? Well, uh, the word hekim doesn't have to mean that there was some pre-existing covenant. It doesn't have to do that. And it's used in certain contexts to mean begin. 
but I think there is something to it. I think it is just a simple indication that he's going to, in the future, make a covenant. That's all I, I think that he's talking about. He's telling Noah before the horrible experience that he's going to go through for over a year before he gets off that thing that he is going to establish his covenant with him. So yeah. will is the active word. Well, I, um, yeah, it's a translation so you have to kind of watch some of that. But I think it has to do with the fact that yes, he's going to to do it. He's telling him of what he's going to do. Not that he's saying, I'm going to establish a covenant. Remember the one I've already told you about. Because that doesn't make any sense because, well, where is it then? What's the point in God saying, I've already told you about something and not putting it in the Bible so we can find out about it too? Do you see? It's like... Uh, me, I don't know, I can't try to think of a, uh, an example, but me saying that uh, I'll tell you about that thing I ate last week, but I don't tell you about it. Well, you think, well, what's the point of telling me that you're going to tell me about it if you don't tell me about it? Do you see? It's, there's no point in actually bringing it up in the first place unless you're actually going to tell me about it. So, here, it's, uh, I think, a much better way to do this rather than go down the slippery slope of uh, trying to find this, this covenant that's supposed to have been made before and lo and behold, coming up with something that's not in the Bible and then imposing that on the Bible, it's just best to say there wasn't a covenant before this. He's just mentioned it. He's just brought it up here and he's going to to cut the covenant when Noah gets off the ark. Yeah? You think, well, why did you even tell me about that? I I didn't need to know about it because I'm trying to be fair. Okay? I'm trying to tell you uh, stuff that at least will make you think, well, maybe he's not got it completely right uh, there. Maybe there is something to this. And I wanted to make sure that you knew that I knew. So, so he's going to, to make a covenant. Now, what is a covenant? Since uh, what I call this course is a course in... Sorry about the clumsy terminology. Biblical covenantalism. I would have loved to have called it covenant theology, but somebody nicked that a few hundred years ago. Um, then what we, what we have is, is a theology that's going to be based on the covenants that God makes. And so uh, what we need to ask is what is a covenant, particularly what is a biblical covenant. Covenants were used in uh, the ancient world often and uh, they were used to settle disputes. So when, um, let's see, when Isaac wants to, to dig a well, so he digs a well and then um, the, uh, the king's, what's the king's name? 
can't remember his name. The king comes and or his servants come and they either take off over the well or they they uh, uh, kind of fill it in and so he has to move. And finally, he comes to Beersheba. I think it's chapter 26 of Genesis. Let's have a look at that. <clears throat> yeah, 2617. Uh, there's a bunch of quarrelling going on there. And uh, look at verse 20. The herdsmen of Gerar quarrelled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Ezek because they quarrelled with him. Then they dug another well and they quarrelled over that one also. And he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. So you've got some stuff going on there, some dispute. Can you see? Uh Verse 26, then Abimelech came to him, that's to Isaac, from Gerar with Ahuzath, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, let there now be an oath. Look at that word, please. Oath between us between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. Let us cut a covenant with you. That you may do us no harm, since we have not touched you, and since we have done nothing to you but good, (laughs) and have sent you away in peace. Uh, You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath, please notice that word, with one another, and Isaac sent them away and they departed in peace. Um, and then they find the Beersheba uh, well too. So, what was the covenant for there? Protection, yes. What? Is that a mutual benefit between parties? It was a mutual understanding, understanding, yeah. So you have, uh, uh, the the reason that I'm just not going to put benefit there is sometimes uh, with some covenants, the one that's benefiting is the one who's the, the victorious ruler. Okay? Uh, the others are kind of not not really beneficiaries so much as they have to do what the ruler has said they've got to do. Do you see? But certainly there's a mutual understanding. Now, okay, what do you have to have to have mutual understanding? So you're a lawyer, John. So what do you need to have to have... Li- a meeting of the minds. Okay. So, what's a meeting of the minds? Yeah, but we've already got the word understanding. (laughs) Think about this. 
All right, so you're Isaac, okay? And Abimelech comes to you and he wants to make this covenant, he wants this oath. What, what kind of understanding do you want? Okay, so there are then specific things. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, no, I don't like benefits. Stop saying that. Okay, specific. Let's. I put benefits because you. <laughs> all right. All right. He's messing with my mind over there. <clears throat> Specific items, we will call them. Right. So there are specific, this is important, there are specific things that they are to agree upon. Now, what do you need? This is very easy, okay? Don't think, don't get too profound here. What do you need uh, when you have um, two people agreeing on specifics? What, what do you need to have? You need trust. What builds the trust? Relationship. Somewhat of a relationship. There's something more, much more basic than this. Communication. And what is the most basic thing that you need in communication? If you're going, I mean, if you're going to communicate to me, then what's the thing that you've got to do in order for me to understand? Speak the same language. And speak. Yeah. No, come on. I mean, yeah, you got to speak truth. But even if you don't speak truth, I can still understand you sometimes. Clearly. clearly. Thank you. Thank you. You've got to speak clearly. <laughs> All right. I, see, we forget about this stuff, guys. We do. We forget about this stuff. But this is the basis of what language is for. God speaks to you. Okay. So you can understand him. And so he speaks clearly. Okay? There's nobody here that doesn't know that they're supposed to live a holy life before God. And there's nobody here that doesn't know that when they're not living a holy life before God, that God doesn't like it and they need to change. Yes? yes. How do we know that? Because God makes it really, really clear that we are to be holy as he's holy. And all of this other language. Specificity is really, really, really the, the important thing. And you can't have specificity, agreed upon specificity, unless there is clarity. Perspicuity. There needs to be something that is, is clearly understood by both sides. So, later on, um, it's um, Jacob's turn to make a covenant. Okay? He's been living with Laban for years and he snuck off with his wife and his herds and everything else. Okay? And uh, so, he's running and running and running and, and uh, Laban's coming after him. And so, he kind of hides the... the, the uh, wives and the kids and so on and he goes and he faces Laban and uh, Laban says you know surely you'd have a, you know, we'd have had some 
words here, but God visited me last night and told me not to touch you. So, you know, persuasive kind of thing, telling him that he better make peace with Jacob. So, they set up a rock and they both make a vow. What that vow is that I will not come, pass over from here to there, past this rock, uh, for harm to you. Do you see? So that's the agreed oath that they both make and they both understand it really clearly. Now what would have happened if the moment they'd have agreed to the oath, Laban would have said, well, yeah, but... And he crossed over there and just belted... um, Jacob on the nose. Jacob could have said, you broke the covenant. And Laban would have understood very clearly that he had broke the covenant because they both understood the specifics of the covenant. Do you see? What is necessary in order for there to be a covenant is that there is clear understandings of the terms of the covenant. Otherwise, you know, I could make a, like, um, say I was selling a car. I just sold a car um, a few weeks ago. So, uh, I sold this this young lady uh, a car. And uh, it was up for uh, eight and a half grand. And so, she agrees with me, eight and a half grand. And she gives me eight and a half grand in an envelope. And I say, where's the rest of it? And she said, well, we agreed for eight and a half. I said, yeah, but when I meant, when I said eight and a half, I was speaking typologically. I was speaking spiritually. You're not supposed to take me literally. I mean, that's a wooden literal interpretation. You know, I want 18 grand. Literally. Do you see? Or, actually, I don't want any money at all. I want your house. Or, do you see? Something completely different than what we'd agreed on. I hope that you can see that it is absolutely ridiculous to talk covenantal language if that covenantal language doesn't mean what it says. And there's not clear understanding from all the parties involved on what the words of the covenant are and what they mean. You say, this is really, really rudimentary and why are you uh, going on about this? Because if you don't remember this stuff, you are not going to be able to cross over from the Old Testament to the New Testament when we get there. Okay? And you're going to do this, oh yeah, but what if, and what about this, and you're going to start presupposing what you think you know about the New Testament and reading it back into the Old Testament. Instead of what we are doing in this class, which is what we are just trying to pretend that we don't know, because you know, often we don't know what we think we know, and we're just listening to the Old Testament and picking up information as we run, as we go through. And our understanding is growing as we move through the Bible. So that by the time we get to the end of this particular course and then the end of the next course, 
which goes through the Old Testament prophets, <clears throat> and so we get to the end of the Old Testament itself, we would have picked up a great deal of information and, the next big word, expectation. Because you can't have a covenant without an expectation. What's the expectation? Yeah, like Laban is not going to come over here and punch me on the nose. Or Abimelech's herdsmen are not going to come and steal my well from me. Do you see? There's an expectation that the words that are in the covenant are going to be followed. The first person if I can put it that way, who makes a covenant in history is God. Not the ancient Babylonians or the Sumerians or the Akkadians. Okay? They're all after Noah. The first one is God with Noah. So, if you want to understand what a covenant is, you're going to, well, biblically, you're going to have to study the Bible. We have probably 60 to 70 ancient Near Eastern covenants that have been found where, you know, one guy, Yerimlin or someone like that, that's a real name by the way, um, king of such and such a province makes an agreement with uh, this unnameable uh, person from the Hittites and they agree to a certain thing. Or, you have this ruler, let's say Sennacherib, later on, who makes a covenant with, say, Jehu, or someone like that, a Jewish king, and he puts tribute on the Jewish king, and the Jewish king has to pay that tribute, and it's within the covenant. I'm not going to come here and, and annihilate Israel, as long as you agree to this, and I will protect you and all that stuff. Yes? Nebuchadnezzar is another example of that. But in both of those, uh, those understandings, I hope you see that both parties have got to be very, very clear on what's expected. And in the ancient covenants, very often they're what, they're what are called suzerain vassal treaties. The suzerain is the ruler, the vassal is the one that's been conquered. Uh, there is, if you do this, I will bless you and I will, you know, you'll be provided with food and you would do this if you just do what I tell you to do and don't give me trouble. If you don't, I'm going to come after you and I'm going to do this, this and this and this. And it's really not very nice what they they do, you know, things like pulling people's arms off and things like that. Well, he's not talking, the king's not talking spiritually or typologically. Okay? They meant that literally. I'm going to pull your arm off. Or I'm going to put a rope through here and out of here and I'm just going to have you as a, an animal on a rope. That's what they did. That's what the Assyrians did. Okay? Kept them in cages because they defied the covenant. Do you see things like that? It's literal. 
they meant it literally. Every covenant has got to be taken literally. You're beating this to death, Paul. I know I am. Because this is my, this is my big spiel about it. Okay? Well, it's not. Actually, I'm going to do it again. But this is the, the one I want you to remember. That a covenant, the, the very, very rock bottom basis of a covenant is clarity in mutual understanding over specific things. Now, those specific things, if I can move off of the, you know, hammering the same nail. If I, uh, the specific things obviously are not going to be trivial, are they? Nobody makes a covenant over trivial things. Like that's, you know, we make a covenant over this pencil sharpener or something like that. We make a covenant over wells, uh, you know, lifelines. We make covenants over um, uh, war, wars or, or to end wars. Big, significant things. If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, you can see that the Bible itself says this very thing. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse, we'll start from verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Swore what? What do you swear? You swear a what? An oath. That's right. Saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them, what? An end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability, unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. Do you see? You've got to have an oath because the oath is where you find the specifics. If you can't find an oath, there's no point in talking about the covenant because you don't know what the covenant says. No. No, the oath is the particular specifics, the agreement, as it were, in the contract itself. It's not, a covenant is not really a contract, but if you want to use it, use that terminology to help you understand it, so then yes. So, you think oath and covenant are same deal? The a oath is the central aspect of a covenant. The covenant can actually, will be a relationship that's based on that oath. The oath Do you see? is not expressing a definite obligation? Yes, it is. It, the oath is the thing that the covenant is about. Yes. Go to Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 3, it says in verse 15, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, Confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. You got it? 
You make a covenant to end dispute about something important. You don't mess with it afterwards. There have always been agreements. Agreement. An agreement is the prelude of a covenant. It's covenant only. It was not just necessarily a biblical covenant as it was with Abraham, but a covenant can be made between two non-biblical. Yeah, you can have. Yeah. Yeah. The distinction between a covenant and a law or agreements or whatever they used back in that term. Why was it called a covenant and not just something else? Right, because it was a solemn, it was usually solemnly enacted. Contracts are normally not solemnly enacted, they're signed. Uh, But this was a solemnly enacted thing, so often something would be sacrificed. There would be a bloodletting of some sort, or there would be, and there would be a meal uh, to agree uh, on that there was peace. You see, it's a symbolic. uh, idea of, of resolution but most importantly a covenant begins in some form or another it does vary but in some form or another the covenant begins a relationship now a contract doesn't necessarily do that contract's just something you, you know it might be an abstract thing that neither of you see each other again or bother about each other again there's nothing that ties you, but but a covenant uh, kind of binds you and your character to that particular thing. It's enduring. Now, what is uh, what's what's really important? Do you have a question? No, I just thought that we don't seem to make covenants. No, we don't. We, we don't. Contracts and yes, that's right. Which are a little more slippery. Yes, they can be, can't they? Yeah. But covenants, you see, they, you've got, both people have got to be absolutely clear on the specifics. If somebody's, you know, enacts the covenant and then lo and behold, they, you know, they flip it over and there's all of this, uh, small writing on the back. Okay. That destroys the covenant. In a, co- in a contract, it wouldn't. With a covenant, it does. Because the agreement was about what was understood, you see, in the oath, that particular oath itself. No, there's nothing that's added to it or extra. No uh, small print to it. Everything is understood. Yes? Isn't it also that the consequences of breaking covenant is far more dire than just a contract? Yes, usually that is the case. A covenant breaker often... um, you know, will incur, well, in, in the sense of what we're talking about here, divine human covenants, divine wrath, divine disfavor. Now, uh, I want to qualify that because the Noahic covenant, like most of the covenants that God makes, is unilateral. In other words, it's only God that, that enters into it. Um, We'll look at it in, in, uh, we go back to Genesis 8. We'll look at it in just a sec. But God tells Noah 
what he's going to do. Noah doesn't have to do anything but get in the boat. In fact, Noah actually doesn't have to get do that because he's actually been in the boat and he, all he has to do is get out of the boat, which he's very willing to do. Do you see? God, Noah doesn't have to do anything. Neither does Abraham in Genesis 15. Abraham doesn't have to do a thing. God puts him to sleep, as we'll see. Now, there are conditions that are added later on which will qualify whether the covenant comes to fulfilment in a generation or whatever. It might postpone the fulfilment of the covenant, but it cannot eclipse or or cancel the fulfilment. Do you see? Um, So let's have a look here at uh, the Noahic covenant. When you're reading about covenants or books by Bible scholars about covenants, if they're a good scholar, they will tell you, they will just be quite clear about the fact that, yeah, we have these ancient covenants, these suzerain vassal treaties and, um, you know, all of these other uh, kinds of, of, of treaties, parity treaties and so on. But if you really want to know about biblical covenants, you've got to go to the Bible. You don't interpret Bible covenants with these other covenants. Again, that's good advice because that, if you did, that would destroy the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, which you must always guard. So let's have a look here what goes on. Verse 15 of chapter 8. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may be may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Uh, It's obviously a thank for thanks and so on. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, now, right, what are we going to come across here then? This is one of those places where God's going to be speaking to himself and we get to hear it, as it were. Now that's really important because this, is a, this becomes a test case then for whether God means what he says when he's talking to himself. Never mind when he's talking to other people. Does he actually uh, mean what he says to himself. Let's see. I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Well, did he mean what he said? Of course he did. Of course he did. Now, you say, again, I know that you can, you can say, well, Paul, this is so, like, you know, rudimentary that I don't even know why you're 
you telling me this. I'm, I'm much more educated than this and I'm much more smart than you're taking me for. And so why don't we just get out of this sandbox and, and talk about something on the top shelf? It's because you won't be able to get to the top shelf accurately if you don't get this. If you want to know, you know this in the Christian life, guys, don't you? You know that you, if you reach for this big stuff off here, up here, uh, if you don't take care of the, the basic stuff down here, then it doesn't matter how much of this stuff you know. The basic stuff is just, you know, it's in tatters and everything's going to be in tatters. You've got to keep telling yourself what you already know. Um, so you stop praying, for example. Well, what do you need to do? You've got to start praying. You stop reading the Bible. What have you got to do? Start reading the Bible. You've backslidden into the world and you've got worldly and, you know, in your, maybe in your business dealings or in your friends or in your, in your habits or whatever. What have you got to do? You've got to come out of the world. Okay? Because you've been separated from the world. You've been bought with a price. Do you see? It's all basic stuff. But unless you get that basic stuff, then you're not ready to, to go on. And, and very often I'm afraid that when it comes to Bible knowledge and knowing the, the basic storyline of the Bible, people don't hang around long enough to get very, very clear on the, these fundamentals. And I'm hoping <clears throat> that by, by being so annoying in beating the same dead horse for the last half an hour, um, that I will instill in you the importance of what covenants are, what they're for, what to look for in a covenant, and then what to look for as that covenant keeps going in the Bible and how it's going to inform what God's going to do in the future. Because nothing, folks, nothing can cut across the wording of a covenant. It's a solemn oath. You cannot mess with it. That's what Paul says in Galatians. You can't mess with it. It settles it. Do you see? <clears throat> now look at this little poem here. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Well, you, we take that for granted. The seasons and so on. The uniformity of nature, we take it for granted. Every atheist scientist takes it for granted. They, they cannot explain it on the basis of atheism. David Hume showed that. But a Christian can because he knows that tomorrow will be like today and therefore his experiments will not, uh, you know, be, will be repeatable tomorrow. Do you see? Because the, the world will be in a uniformly held uh, normative state. That's why the pioneers of science were held to a Christian worldview. They all believed that. <clears throat> That's why if you hold to a Christian worldview 
and you don't get you don't allow yourself to get to think that Christianity is all about singing Hillsong songs and listening to sermonettes and you know living the American dream, but you actually get serious about the Bible. And you get serious about the fact that you are a creature of God bought with a price and you will answer to God. So will I. If you get serious about those things, then uh, you will see the world. I've got my glasses on it. So you'll see the word world here through biblical glasses. So when you go into your careers, you will see the world as a Christian. I'm a Christian Lawyer. Is that what you are? He's a Christian lawyer. You're a Christian. Are you a housewife? Hmm? Housewife? Yeah. Housewife. That's, you know, the basis of uh, the, the world is the, the, the work of the housewife. You're a Christian pastor. You're a Christian housewife over there. Whatever you're doing, you do it as a Christian. Christian scientist, although don't call yourself that. But you're a scientist who is a Christian and therefore you, you do science through the, the, uh, the spectacles of a biblical outlook on the world. Do you see? Don't! Please. I wish I had a bunch of kids here. Uh, don't think that the Bible is just for Sunday or just for little play, you know, times like this. It's true. It's, it's the truth. It's the truth by which you interpret everything else. It should be the, the, take up the mental furniture with which you see the world and interpret the world and value the world. You don't just take the glasses off. Okay, I'm now going to the laboratory. I don't need uh, the Bible anymore. I don't need uh, you know those glasses anymore. No, I have a debates online. If you go to that this sharper iron thing, you'll see I have a debate with this physicist who's a Christian um, because I did some reviews of some science books, and he said, "Well, um, good." He's a good man, by the way, and. he said, well, it's all right for you to inveigh against methodological naturalism. You know, that, that uh, we just uh, do our, our science uh, and uh, we just look for naturalistic explanations of natural phenomena. Okay? Uh, it's all right for you because you don't w- work in uh, the academy, the secular academy like I do. And I said, well, I'm not saying you should go around, you know, with a flag and wave around the fact that you're, a, you know, you see everything through a Christian worldview and uh, supernaturalism is true. But I'm saying when you look for natural explanations, which you're supposed to do, don't think that the natural explanations are the final explanations. The final explanations to everything are supernatural because Christ upholds everything by the word of his power including the laws of nature that you as a physicist use. So, what I, what I was trying to tell him was that, that as a scientist, you cannot do science f- 
for the glory of God unless you take God in with you. A, a biblical mindset. And our kids, our kids, we're losing our kids. Why? Because we entertain them, because we give them sermonettes. I mean, John is a fantastic guy for, for preaching the truth, but that's not going to be enough if the parents do not raise their kids with a biblical worldview. Otherwise, they'll get to the, into the college and they'll think, what's the point of this? This gives me stories. Now I'm in the real world. Okay? You've got to teach them to take this and see the world with it. Otherwise, they'll have no basis for values. They'll have no basis for the significance of life. They'll have no basis for the idea of truth. And certainly they won't have any fear of God. So, um, what we have in this verse is uh, a basis for the uniformity of nature. So, when an atheist asks me about uh, science, I say, you don't have a basis for science. I have a basis for science in Genesis 8.22. So did Isaac Newton, so did Robert Boyle, so did John Ray, so did uh, you know, Kepler and, and the rest of them. Do you see? Because they, they, they thought God's thoughts after, the, after him. <clears throat> so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That had been said, of course, to Adam. And some people say, well, this is a... a uh, re-giving of the uh, initial creation mandate. Some people even say this is a, a, a restatement of the Adamic covenant, but it's not. It's just God giving his blessing and his commandment for Noah to go and make more people. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the air and all that move on the earth and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. But there's no real dominion so much now, you see. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. That wasn't said before. I have given you all things even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now he has to talk about that because he's just talked about eating flesh. So he has to qualify. You can eat flesh, but you can't eat it with the blood in it. Uh, that's not just for Israel. By the, by the way, you can see this is before the nation of Israel. God does not like you to eat the flesh with the blood in it. In the book of Acts, chapter 15, you see the same thing written to the Gentiles by the apostles. He, don't like, he doesn't like this. So that means, I, I think that means I can't eat black pudding anymore, unfortunately. You, you call it blood pudding, but in England it's black pudding, which I think is nicer than blood pudding. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know, you might not have a problem, because it's not an animal, it's just animal's blood. But, but uh, you're not, 
supposed to eat the animal with the blood in it. God's against that. It's very clear, by the way, isn't it? What you're not supposed to do. God does make it clear. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now what this means is that the image was not destroyed when Adam fell. Because God's reason for capital punishment here is the image of God that is still in man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So that's a bit of information that is given to Noah and then we get the covenant. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying, As for me, and as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, and all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. What does that mean that, that God is speaking there to Noah and he's got a donkey and a giraffe and a lion and a poodle or whatever, you know, standing next to him and they're all nodding because they all understand what's going on. No, he's speaking only to the man. But the covenant is made with the whole of, with all living things, of which man is the head. Biblical worldview, folks. Peter Singer of Princeton says that uh, a newborn baby is no more valuable than a slug. If you've got a biblical worldview, you cannot believe that because we are important. We're the head of the animal. Well, not even, we're not even animals. We're over the animal kingdom. And here saying, look, you... This is a, he was going to destroy all of the animals with, with man. Now he's going to save all the animals with man. Do you see? And man's still going to have dominion. But it depends on man's fortunes what kind of fortunes the animals are going to have. Because the, the, the beasts and the earth are made for man. <clears throat> Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. That's the oath. That's the oath. Very clear. Then you get a sign or a token of the oath. This is the sign of the covenant which I make. The sign is not the covenant. It's the token of the covenant or the sign of the covenant. As a a reminder, a mnemonic, which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations, I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
and it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of, the, of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Um, so when you see a rainbow next, okay, it's really pretty, but um, remember that the rainbow is telling you about God's faithfulness and it's telling you God means what he says. That's what it's telling you. God means what he says. Man spiritualizes the Bible. God means what he says. Now, Just uh, ten more minutes or so. Look at the oath in verse 11. <clears throat> so, is the, oath, is the oath clear? Is there anybody here that believes that God is going to destroy the earth with a global flood again? Why not? Why, why not? So, and the oath has got to mean what it says. Do you see? Nobody, not even those wild spiritualizers, good brothers and sisters in Christ, but those people, wild spiritualizers, uh, who, uh, you know, you can't read half of the Old Testament, well, three quarters of the Old Testament without them applying it to the church. Um, not even those guys believe that God is going to bring a flood on the earth again. Why not? However they like to get their little pea shooters out and shoot at people that believe in literal interpretation, they take that literally. That's why. By the way, they also take the gospel literally, that Christ died for us. They also take the fact that God created everything literally. They take heaven and hell literally, they take the resurrection of Jesus, they actually take all of the major doctrines literally. It's all these add-ons, which are their add-ons, sometimes our add-ons, that they don't take literally, because they don't get there literally, they get there by using their own speculations and imaginations. But you see, I've already said that a covenant has got to mean what it says, this is a big one. This is, this is made with Adam, who's from the earth, taken from the ground, and with the whole of the earth. Do you see that? And so, this is our last little thing here. Where's me? All right. <clears throat> I'm rubbing this important material out. Just try and remember clarity, specificity, expectation Um, so the Noahic covenant um, deals with uh, man and his um, 
I won't get environment in there, but what's a shorter word for environment? Surroundings, that's still pretty big, but we'll put it in there. Man and his surroundings. Uh, notice verse 22, uniformity of nature, seasons. No, uh, he's not going to curse the earth again. The earth is cursed, but he's not going to curse it again you know, like this. No more flood. Noahic covenant means what it says. That means that, that from the time that Noah gets off the ark up until the time when God... Um, um, this is... Uh, one of my great drawings again, destroys the earth, okay? And replaces it with a new heavens and new earth. You have a uniformity. You have a kind of a, a if you like, a, a platform or a stage for the outplay of history. This covenant establishes the uniformity uh, that's going to, which is, sorry, is necessary for the teleology and the eschatology to arrive here and then for finally the new heavens and the new earth, which will go into eternity. Um, what does the Noahic covenant do? Does it just say we're not going to have another global flood, so we don't need to make another ark? Or is there something more significant that's, that's uh, also involved in this? Yes, it means that, that we can expect this present world, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, when he's dealing with the flood, he says the world as it was then perished. The world as it is now, okay? When Noah gets out off the ark, the old world is gone. You cannot get back to it. It's gone. Completely, you know, perturbed and, and uh, um, destroyed. You can't get back to Eden. You can't get back to the way things were before the flood. Very different world, very different planet. It's the world that it is now that we are in and that is governed by a covenant. Now folks, um, God's going to make some other covenants. So God's going to make um God's going to make an Abrahamic covenant. That's going to be a pretty important one. We'll um, be looking at that next week. Or will it? Uh, he's going to make the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is going to be a little bit different than the other covenants. Because this is going to, these covenants that I've not got the circle around are going to be God promising to do something without man having to do anything. This one is a parity, agreement. Israel say, we'll do this. Okay? So they broke it. 
Um, so there's the Mosaic Covenant. There's also one you probably haven't heard of called the Priestly Covenant that we'll look at. Very important one. And then we've got the Davidic Covenant. And then we have the New Covenant that's promised. It actually is not instantiated, it's just promised. The New Covenant is not actually made, it's, it's ratified, well, started to be made after the cross with the church, but it's not made with, the, with Israel until um, Christ returns. But you have the New Covenant too. Have I forgotten one? These are the major ones. But none of these would be possible unless you have the basis for the outplay of history in the Noahic Covenant. Do you see? So what I'm saying here to end this class is that history is covenantally determined. Biblical history is covenantally determined. So... If you want to know about the big story, if you want to know about where things are going and what God's going to do and what he has done, look at the covenants. That's where he's made oaths to do specific things that are unchangeable. And he's done it for specific people. And folks, you would be amazed as I've been amazed um, how few people do this. Pay attention to this. They've always got something else that they interpret the covenants by and the covenants are not given uh, the kind of, of authority and weight that they should be given. But if you just leave them alone, you learn an awful lot. And so that's what we are doing in this class. Okay, any questions? If God always gives as he has here, he mentions it more than once. That's very important. In the covenants in the Abrahamic, are they mentioned many, many times? Ah, so very, that's a... Very good question, and that's what the next course is going to show you. Okay, that's why you have to come to the next course as well. Okay, uh, the next course is going to show you the prophets continually bring these covenants up, and they do something very interesting with them. They mix them together, and that shouldn't surprise you, because God's plans. Uh, converge. He's not at cross purposes making different covenants that are doing different things. They're all part of one plan, but different strands of that plan that come together. You see? And so the, the, uh, the, the prophets continually talk about these covenants and they mix them together with the other covenants. Even the Noahic covenant. Um, that's why probably the next course is my favourite. But uh, last thing that you need to write down or remember, do you know what the word hermeneutics refers to? Yeah, interpretation, okay? 
if covenants are anything, they are hermeneutical. Um, they are essential for understanding the Bible because they can't be changed. If you want something that's solid, that's unchangeable, a signpost that uh, means that's not going to mean one thing in 2000 BC and another thing in 50 AD, in other words, there's, there's no switcheroo, they mean exactly what they say, then look at the covenants because the covenants are the things that cannot change. They're very clear. And further, nothing can come in in God's plan to, to cross or over, uh, overtake or overwhelm those covenants. So the covenants then become the backbone for interpreting the entire Bible. If something comes in and disagrees with a covenant and seems to threaten it, you've probably got the wrong interpretation. Go back to the drawing board, look at the covenant and figure out how this uh, thing that you're bringing to it, uh, how you've got it wrong. Maybe, or almost certainly because of your assumptions. Your assumptions are probably wrong. As you're reading the church into it, or you're reading yourself into it, or something like that. So where do these folks get this concept that the Bible needs to be reinterpreted now in our culturally context? Well, um, I'm, I'm not here referring to, if I think, uh, I think what you're asking is, um, you know, the modernist view of things. That's basically through unbelief. And that's because you, people have taken their eyes off the Bible and they are interpreting the Bible through uh, the culture. And there's no, the only redemption for that is repentance. But uh, there's something much more subtle, much more powerful than that. And that is where you have people that really do love the Lord and they, they want to believe the Bible, but they reinterpret the Old Testament by the New Testament because they think the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's not. It's not. The New Testament is just more of the story. The fulfillment, the fulfillment hasn't happened yet. Yeah, but I'm not talking about them as much. That's what he was asking about. I'm talking about people that, that just have an assumption that everything, for example, or most things were, were fulfilled at the cross. Folks, if most things were fulfilled at the cross, then you've got to go back into the Old Testament and spiritualize it. Because it doesn't fit. When we get to the prophets, you're going to see something. You're going to see that the prophets do not put a great deal of emphasis on the first coming. Have you ever noticed that? They put a lot more emphasis on what we call the second coming. They do. 
<clears throat> they see it as one. They do. They see it as one. And we do. We should too. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating not just the cross, but the second coming. Do you see? It's one work split into two. But it's one work and it's not finished yet. That means it's not fulfilled yet. That means if you go back and look for fulfillment 2,000 years ago, you are going to have to spiritualize three quarters of the Bible. Because you cannot get a plain sense fulfillment until Jesus comes back. That's when you get the the literal fulfillments. That's when the covenants finally are consummated.